Thank you, Keith. Good morning, church family. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've uh, witnessed and participated in uh, so far this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to lift our voices and worship to you. We thank you for allowing our ears to hear uh, these powerful testimonies of life transformed, allowing our eyes to see the picture of the gospel in baptism. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would open uh, our ears and our minds and, and really our hearts to receive what you want to say to us today. Lord, I pray that uh, I would very quickly fade into the background and my voice, Lord, would, would fade into the background so that your voice could be clearly heard speaking through your living and active word. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here at Hope Church, for the last several summers, we've been making our way through the book of Psalms. Several years ago, we started with Psalm 1, and uh, today we find ourselves at Psalm uh, 58. Uh, this is the longest sermon series uh, ever, and uh, it's going to go on for many more uh, years. And as we've been going through uh, somewhere in the Psalms, each Psalm one by one, uh, different Christians have kind of gotten excited because they're like, oh, we're coming to one of my favorite psalms. You know, when we got to Psalm 23, I remember Pastor Chris preached on that. There was some excitement about Psalm 23, and other people really like a Psalm 46. You know, be still and know that I am God. Others are looking forward ahead to, you know, Psalm 90. Maybe we'll get to that in like 2033 or something like that. And, and because we have certain psalms that we really like. I'm just going to go out on a limb today and say that Psalm 58 is no one's favorite psalm. <laughs> Nobody has a coffee mug with a verse from Psalm 58 in it. There's no grandmothers with a, with a, uh, with a needlepoint uh, quotation from Psalm uh, 58 in her living room. But this is part of the reason why we're going through the Psalms like this. Uh, we're committed here at Hope to teach the whole counsel of God. And there is a, a temptation, sort of. So let, let's skip over the part about breaking people's teeth and bathing our feet in blood of, of the enemies. Like, the, you, can, you can understand, especially, it sort of rubs us the wrong way in our 21st century sensitivities. But... Psalm 58 is a really important psalm because it gives us a bit of a playbook for how Christians should respond to oppression, injustice, and corruption. When, when people in positions of power use that power to harm those who are weak, how should Christians respond? Should Christians just sort of shrug their shoulders and, and move on and keep us a happy, smiley face even in the face of this kind of oppression? When, when politicians use political power to legislate the protection of evildoers and restrict those who are actually trying to do good, should Christians just shrug their shoulders and move on? Should, should Christians shrug their shoulders and move on when, when media and, and entertainment celebrate that which is shameful and mock that which is sacred? 
Should we just be indifferent to those things? Should we be indifferent when rather than, rather than enforcing the law, a police officer enacts his racial prejudice? Should we just be okay with that? Should we be okay with, with a pastor who uses his position and authority over members of the congregation to manipulate them or to abuse them or to take advantage of them? Should we be okay? No. We shouldn't be okay with politicians who act like that or, entertain, or entertainers or journalists or police officers or pastors. So what are we supposed to do? We're not making a coffee mug. We're not going to crochet it and put it on our wall, but Psalm 58 is a place where we can turn. That the, for the people of God, we are called to have a position in which we have opposition towards injustice, opposition towards injustice in anticipation of final judgment. That's what Psalm 58 tells us. It's about opposition to injustice with anticipation of the final judgment. Uh, psalm 58 is called an imprecatory psalm. Uh, there's, there's, you know, depending on which scholar you talk to, there's anywhere between five and 20 of these psalms. Imprecatory means a curse. These are songs of cursing. Uh, David here is looking at these oppressive authorities and he's calling God to curse them, to destroy them. This is some of the harshest language uh, in the Bible found here in Psalm 58. As Keith read, it begins by mentioning the choir master. This would have been the person who was responsible for putting this song to music. You can bet it would be sort of in a minor key. And then it says, according to do not destroy. We mentioned this last week. Uh, do not destroy. That was a, that's a line from David. David was with his bloodthirsty nep nephew Abishai and Saul was there sleeping and Abishai wanted to stab him, wanted to kill Saul. Saul had been chasing David, trying to kill David and Abishai said, now here's your chance to get vengeance. Here's your chance to destroy the one who's trying to destroy you. And David said, do not destroy and so that was probably a popular song or something like that. This, this theme of do not destroy, that's why that's there. It says that it's a mictum of David. Now, one of the things I love about this church is you just sort of look around. There's just a great deal of diversity here. And so there's a diversity of linguistic backgrounds. And so I mentioned initially that, that covering, or sorry, that, that mictum sounds like the Akkadian uh, word for covering. Akkadian and Hebrew are closely linked, and so David was undercover, hiding from Saul, who was a, in a position of authority. And so this is a covering psalm. And then I, I also mentioned that in Hebrew, uh, the word sounds like a Hebrew word for engraving, and David was hiding out in caves. So some people believe that he engraved these psalms in uh, in the stone, in the cave. And then uh, Sabatoma, uh, who speaks Arabic, told me that miktam in Arabic uh, means golden. And so these psalms are, 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 could be called the golden uh, psalms. And so maybe next week I'll have another definition of, of miktam if someone else uh, wants to share with me uh, another uh, insight. But here we see a, a playbook for how to respond to oppression. How do we respond to injustice, when those who have all of the power are using that power not to help, but to harm. 
The, the, the playbook rolls out sort of in three distinct parts, and here's the first one. The Bible gives us permission, encourages us, to call out oppressive authorities, to call out oppressive authorities. To call somebody out is just what it sounds like. It just means to, in front of others and in front of them, you're not talking about them behind their back, you're calling them out. You're holding them to account for what they have done or haven't done. And that's how the psalm begins. He says, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of men uprightly? That's a question. Are, are you decreeing what's right? Are you judging justly? And then he gives the answer in verse 2. No. No, you don't. He's, he's not going to wait for a response from them because he knows the answer. Now, notice that he addresses them as gods. Uh, th- that word gods can actually be translated mighty ones. Sometimes it's used to describe our God. Other times it's just used to describe people who are in a position of authority. And the reason why we know that this isn't describing our God, this isn't describing angelic beings or divine beings, is because later on in the psalm it talks about being born, it talks about having blood, it talks about, he's talking about human rulers in, uh, in Israel, those who were together with Saul trying to oppress and destroy David and all those who were with him. They weren't judging rightly. So David asks us the question in verse, in verse 1, are you doing this? And then he answers, no, no, no you aren't. He's calling them out. He says in verse 2, no, in your hearts you devise wrongs, and in your hands you deal out violence on the earth. There's the heart and there's the hand. He starts with the heart. It all starts in the heart. When, when, when we talk about the Bible, from, from what we do with our hands, from what we say with our mouths, it all starts with the heart. And David says, in your heart, you're devising evil. This stuff isn't happening by accident. You're planning it out. It's being calculated. You're in this position of, thor- of authority, and you're not accidentally wielding your power in such a way that's harming other people. No, you're devising it. You've planned it out. This is going according to your plan. It started in your heart, and because of that, you are dealing out violence with your hands. There was a reign of terror that was going on in David's day, where people who were trying to support David or help David along the way were immediately executed. They were devising these things in their heart, and they were actioning them with their hands. So here is David in a position of weakness, calling out those who are in a position of power. Now, some people in our society today would say, yes, absolutely. This is, we, we got to speak truth to power. We've got to identify where oppression is happening in our world, and we got to try to, we got to try to change that. In fact, many people in our world today would say that power in itself is inherently evil. No, it's not. Power in itself, authority in itself, is neutral. I mean, remember, God has power, Right? God has authority, and God is good. And so we can't say that to be in a position of power automatically means that you are somehow an oppressor. That's not true. You can be in authority and use that authority, use that power to accomplish 
good. So don't fall into the trap. Don't, don't go way over off the, the, off the edge on this idea of oppression and power. Not all power is evil. God has power. God has authority. God created Adam and Eve before there was sin. He put them on the earth. He put them in the garden. And what did he give them? Dominion. What's dominion? It's power and authority. Before there was sin, there was power, there was authority, there was dominion, not just for God, but also for us as human beings. But sin has entered the world, and just like everything else, power has become corrupted. So David goes on to describe these people as he's calling them out. Verse three, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. He says, right from the very start, right from the womb, right from birth, you know? Lindsay and I have a four energetic little boys and they're all growing up, but I, I remember when they were young. I remember when I was teaching them basic things and, and how to tie your shoes, how to brush your teeth, how, how to dress yourself, but I, I didn't, as, as great as my boys are, I never had to teach them how to lie. I never had to, had to teach them how to grab something from their brother. I didn't give any instructions about how to take their fist and pound it in their brother's face. I didn't have to teach them any of that. They were hardwired like that. That's what David is getting at. He says, you guys have gone stray from birth. And just so we were careful to understand that this isn't, like, this isn't like us versus them kind of a thing. This isn't how David viewed things either because the exact same indictment David gives to himself in, in Psalm 51 verse five. Remember what he said in, in Psalm uh, 51. I'll show it here on the screen. Behold, I, this is David saying, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David knew he had the same sin problem. Just like these wicked rulers. Look with me at verse four. It says, they have venom like the venom of a serpent. They can do a lot of damage. They can, they can poison a, a culture or a society. They can destroy and even kill people. They have venom like a deadly serpent. Also like a serpent in verse four, like a deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. David many times tried to reason with Saul and everyone who was, who was following Saul and trying to put David to death. Many times, even after that moment with Abishai, when Abishai wanted to, to stab Saul, David took Saul's spear and took his jug and he gave it as evidence to say, look, Saul, <clears throat> I could have killed you, but I didn't. David repeatedly tried to reason with these evil rulers, and yet they wouldn't listen. And that's what David is getting at here. You're not only like a snake in that you are dangerous and aggressive, you're like a snake also because you're deaf and you're defiant. You won't listen. Have you noticed that in our society and in our culture today, we have lost the art of listening? That if you try to present an idea that's contrary to the dominant narrative, you're immediately shut down and deplatformed, and people label you or call you this or call you that. There's no listening. We're like deaf 
adders in our culture. That's an aside, that's a sign of oppressive authority. There's a defensiveness, an unwillingness to hear the alternative point of view. So David here looks at those who are in a position of authority, just like we can look at a police officer or a pastor or a politician or an entertainer or a commentator. And and we can recognize the danger of what they're doing or of what they're teaching or of what they're presenting or what they're celebrating. We, We can call it out as Christians and say, this is wrong. That's how this psalm begins, by calling out oppressive authorities. But then the the next turn of the psalm now moves from David speaking to the authorities. Remember, he begins by saying, do you judge justly? And he says, no, he's talking to the oppressive authorities. Then he's talking about them. He says, they're about, they're, they're, they're like these snakes, these venomous animals who are poisoning people. So he's been talking to the oppressors, he's been talking about the oppressors, and now he's going to talk to God. Verse 6, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Have you ever heard that at a prayer meeting? (laughs) This is in the Bible. The second part of our psalm, after calling out oppressive authorities, then the work really begins when we begin to cry out to God for justice. When we begin to cry out to God for justice. So if you're taking notes today, that's, uh, that's the second thing I want you to make note of. Oh God, he, David, David here is going to call down several curses, several imprecations down against these oppressive authority figures. And in some of the curses, he's asking that, they, that these authorities would be restrained. He's, he's asking that God would limit them somehow in their power. In other cases, he's not just asking that they would be restrained, but flat out that they would be removed. And so he, he begins with, he's, he's riffing on this idea of being a serpent. He says, break the teeth in their mouths. Then going on in verse 6, tear out the fangs of the young lions. Oh Lord. So he's, he's used a, a serpent metaphor. Now he's talking about a lion. He, he, he wants God to remove the power that they have to harm people. A, a, a snake without its fangs, a lion without its teeth can't do any damage. So David is praying that evil would be restrained. And God says, do it quickly in verse 7. Verse 7, let them vanish like water that runs away. He says, I want them to be removed. You know, it's, it's so dry these days. And I, 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 I'm trying not to waste water, but every now and again, like part of my lawn, I just feel bad for it because it's just, it's like yellow brown. And so I try to put some water on it. And I just keep putting water, 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 water. And it just runs away. The ground is so, it just disappears, doesn't it? If I were to pour water here on this ledge, it wouldn't be on this ledge for much longer. It would just, it would dissipate, wouldn't it? Water just flows away. You try to hold it in your hand. That's what David is saying. God, would you deal with these people quickly? Would you remove them the way that water falls out of my hand? 
Then he gets back to the restraining thing in verse 7. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Restrain them. Sure, they can fire arrows, God. They can aim. They can plan things in their heart and try to deal them out with their hand. But God, when that arrow fires, would it be blunted? Put a suction cup on the end instead of, a, instead of an arrowhead. And he says in verse 7, let them be like the snail that is dissolved into slime. That's a nice image. Let them be like, again, God, make it permanent. We don't want any sort of comeback. We, we don't want any sort of return. We, we, we want the snail to be slime. We want them to be over and done with. And God, it can't happen fast enough. That's why he, he says in, in verse 8, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. God, they've been alive long enough. If we could reverse all of this, I mean, yesterday is too late. But if you could do it right now, that would be great. That, that, that's the image of, of, of the, the tragedy of a stillborn child. He's saying, God, would, would, it, would it be over before it started? That's what he's saying. And then he continues with that theme in verse 9. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The wicked, you know, they've got this cauldron and they're brewing something up and they're lighting the fire and before, before the, the, the pot, the cauldron can start to get hot, Lord, knock it over, put out the fire, end it before it begins, God. Take away their power, restrain them, in fact, remove them and God, would you do it quickly? This is what David is asking for. All of these vivid met metaphors of serpents and lions and water and archery and a snail and a stillborn child and pots and, and thorns. Now again, the, the, these, we're, we're sort of like, wow, is this even in the Bible? Man, I, I didn't know this kind of stuff was, was in there. Like, are we allowed to... To pray this way? Are we supposed to, to pray this way? You know, someone cuts me off on the highway. Can I start like calling down imprecations on people? How does, this, how does this work? Well, first off, we need to understand that the Psalms represent an intimate prayer relationship between David and God. That David really is, he's expressing his heart now to God. We've got to recognize that. Secondly, we got to recognize that it is right and good to be outraged by evil. You could say, well, what about love? What about love? If you say that you are a loving person but are not against evil, you're not that loving. I'm sorry. To be loving means that you hate when people are murdered. You're not a loving person if you don't care about one person taking the life of another. If you, if you love children, then by nature you should hate pedophilia and try to prevent it and, ref and, and restrain it and destroy it any way that you can. Do you understand what I'm saying? To, to, to love... And then to hate evil, those things aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, they, they walk hand in hand. If you're not outraged by evil, you're probably not that loving of a person. I'm sorry to break it to you. So these, these, these prayers represent these intimate 
expressions between God, they also remind us that if we are gonna be loving people, there's actually, there needs to be some things that are gonna upset us and outrage us. But we also need to understand that all of these imprecations started with, oh God. Not, oh David. David isn't saying, I'm gonna break their teeth. I'm going to make them like a snail that turns into slime. I'm going to blunt their arrows. I'm going to do this. I, no, he, no. He is not saying that he is going to enact these things as a personal vendetta or a way for him to get vengeance. He is calling on God to do these things. And that's a game changer. That's a, that's, that's a really important perspective to have, we, we can pray these things, but we don't practice these things. There's this obscure story when Jesus is with his disciples and he's on his way to Jerusalem in Luke chapter nine. Uh, let me show you here uh, on the screen. In, in Luke nine it says, when, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that means to, to, for him to be put on the cross, he, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent his messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. They were in the north. There's no way to get to Jerusalem except by going through Samaria unless he took a long route uh, to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. They, they thought, hey, you're going to Jerusalem? You're Jewish? We're Samaritan? We don't want your kind here. It was their town. They were in a position of authority. They said, no, you can't do it. Look, look at the response of the disciples. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, uh, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They're personally offended. There's some, there's some injustice here. They're being oppressed. And Jesus says, and he turned to them and rebuked them. He said, no, you, you've got it all wrong. And they went on to another village. So it's, it's not just about us being personally offended. It wasn't just that David was concerned about how Saul and all of Saul's cronies were treating David, but how they were ruling the whole nation. So the, these psalms and these kinds of prayers aren't to be applied when we're personally offended. Uh, furthermore, we're told that we need to trust in God's ultimate judgment. We're, we're told in the New Testament in Romans chapter 12, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Could that be any more clear? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the New Testament ethic that we are called to. But again, we got to understand that Jesus got pretty intense from time to time. His words towards the Pharisees, his words, to, he called Herod a fox, he called him out, that he was dishonest, that he was, uh, that, that he was tricking and manipulating people. He called him a fox. 
Listen to some of the things that Jesus said to the Pharisees at different times. In Matthew 23, there's too many examples to go through, but here's two of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. These were the people who were in positions of religious authority in Jesus' day. He says, for you are all like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And then in Matthew 23, 33, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, just like David called the authorities vipers in Psalm 58. Jesus uses the same language. How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? So we are, we are instructed here in Psalm 58 to call out oppressive authority figures. We're called to call out, cry out to God for justice, and then thirdly, we're called to hold out for the final judgment, to hold out for the final judgment. How can we turn the other cheek? How can we overcome evil by doing good? How can we restrain ourselves from taking vengeance into our own hands while we remember the coming judgment? Look with me at verse 10 and 11. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance he will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. We hold out for the final judgment. A really good friend and mentor of mine uh, started uh, working about a year ago down at the Scott Mission, downtown Toronto on Spadina. And I was really interested to see what he was doing there. And so... I, I drove down uh, to the Scott Mission and um, hadn't driven into uh, downtown Toronto in a real long time. But it, it's interesting that uh, I live in Brampton. And so when I'm, when I'm heading south down the 410 towards the 401 at about Courtney Park near Danville, uh, near Danville Park, I can look across the 401 and I can see the CN Tower. And it's taller than all of the other buildings in the city of Toronto. And then I hop on the 401 and 427, I get down onto the gardener, and then all of a sudden something changes. I can see the CN Tower, but there's all these other condos. Have you noticed all the condos down to Toronto? Like, oh my goodness. And as I'm heading down the gardener, it's kind of disturbing because the condos seem this big and the CN Tower seems this big. And then I go further towards, the, to, towards Toronto, and then I'm really distressed because all I can see at that point are condos, and I can't even see the CN Tower. Then I get right downtown, and then everything's made clear. Okay, the tallest building, the landmark building in the city of Toronto is the CN Tower. God's, God's judgment is like that. When we have the right perspective, when we look at things from the right distance, like when I'm on the 410, it's clear what the tallest building is. But sometimes, even though I'm actually getting close to the height of the CN Tower and all of, its, all of its majesty, even though I'm getting close, at times, the CN Tower seems smaller than the less significant buildings. And then there are even times where I can't even see the tower. 
God's judgment is like that. There's times where, listen, we're all progressing towards the final judgment, God's ultimate judgment, but there are times where what, what the world thinks or what CNN thinks or what social media thinks or what this, our politicians think seems bigger than what God thinks. And there are some times where all we hear and all we see is, is every, all the opinions of the judges in our world and we lose sight of God's judgment. But when we finally get to the destination, it becomes clear. That's what it's like to follow God and to pursue his justice in our world. When we get the right perspective, when we have the right distance from everything, we see things clearly. Sometimes we get right into the middle of it and our perspective gets skewed. And the things that are big seem small, and the things that are small seem big. And so we need to, we need to continually remind ourselves, and Psalm 58 helps us remind ourselves about the final judgment. It says, in that day, the righteous will rejoice. There will be joy on that day when he sees the vengeance. Again, the righteous will not rejoice when the righteous takes vengeance, the righteous will rejoice when they see vengeance because vengeance does not belong to the righteous. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And it says, he, this is, again, this is on nobody's coffee mug. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. That's, that's a very graphic metaphor. Again, we're very far removed from the, the reality, sort of the warrior culture in which David was living in, where there was hand-to-hand -hand combat with swords and shields and spears, and you would be walking in a field where a battle was, and your, your feet would be stained, your robe would be stained with the blood of your enemies. We, we don't really think about that, even the way that we do, the, the, the comforts in which we live, and even the way warfare is enacted in our day and age. We sort of get lost in, in, the, in the graphic metaphor that's used here. But we also got to remember that, you know, David won many victories, and he walked around fields like this. He won many victories fighting on behalf of Saul against the Philistines, and now Saul was chasing him. David won many victories. And loved ones, one day, the son of David, Jesus Christ, is going to bring that ultimate victory. And this is how he's described in Revelation chapter 19. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges. He's the judge and makes war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees everything. You can't hide anything in the dark. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe. Look at this. Dipped in blood. A robe that has walked through the field of battle. And the name by which he is called, the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. This is why his robe is stained in blood, because he's been treading in this winepress. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord 
of lords. This is the final and ultimate judgment. It's not just the Old Testament that uses this kind of language. This, the book of Revelation is in, the, is in the New Testament. This idea of this final judgment against all wickedness. Then in verse 11 it says, Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous, and surely there is a God who judges on earth. You go back to verse 1, it talked about these mighty lords, these rulers who, asking the question, do you judge? In verse 11, the answer is, there is only one who has the ultimate authority to judge. And he will punish those who are evil, and he will reward those who are righteous. Now, some of us see things in our society, see things in our culture, see things that politicians are doing, or entertainers are doing, or police officers are doing, or pastors are doing, and the scale of the evil is so big that we want the scale of our response to be equal in size. We want our response to be as big as the problem. And, and we, we want to take dramatic action. And we want to act fast. We want it to be over and done with. Just like, just like David prayed, you know, before the pot starts to heat up, we want to do this. And so often we want things, we want solutions that are large in scale and that are rapid in their timing. But loved ones, the way of following Jesus so often is not actions that are large in scale and not actions that you can get done before this afternoon. But so often, it's not one large action. It's a thousand small actions. And it's not something that will happen instantaneously, but it happens over time, a long-range commitment. And when we come up against oppressive authorities and when it troubles us to the core of who we are, we have a playbook. We call them out. We cry out to God and we hold out for the final judgment. Just like illness can, can make us long for the new heavens and the new earth where no one ever gets sick and no one dies, just like illness makes us long for the, 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 the end of time. Just like natural disasters also make, make us long because the whole earth is groaning, makes us long for when Jesus will make things right. In the same way that illness and natural disasters show us the brokenness of this world, oppressive authorities do that as well. Make us long for Jesus who will have all of the power and who will rule rightly on the day of final judgment that, loved ones, we won't have the courage to take those small steps over a long period of time unless we know that there is a final, because we'll eventually just give up. But when we hold out, we know that the final judgment is coming. And there will be a judgment for those who are wicked, and there will be a reward for those who are righteous. That's right there in verse 10 and 11. But my question for you this morning is, which side are you on? 
Like, it's pretty clear, right, for us to look at certain, uh, you know, authoritarian uh, politicians uh, in history or even today and say, like, okay, you're on the wicked side. It's, it's easy for us to look at some of the actions that police officers have taken or some of the immorality in our culture or in our entertainment world. It's pretty easy, as hard as it is, to look at some of the pastors in our world that did such evil things and to say, well, you're on the wicked side, right? You're clearly going to be judged. And the assumption that we so often make is that, well, I'm on the good side. Right? The reward is for me and the punishment is for them. But what we so often don't recognize is like, where, where's the line? How do you know that you're on the side of the good people who get the reward? And not like, how bad do you have to be to have someone bathe in your blood with their feet? Where's the line? David, David knew that he was a sinner. David even, again, he was a person in authority. He used his authority to oppress people. Ask Uriah and his family. So David, like people could pray an imprecatory psalm about David. People could pray an imprecatory psalm about you. So how do you ensure that you're on the side of the righteous? Well, the answer is that the one who's going to bring the final judgment, the one whose robe is dipped in blood, when he comes again, his robe will be dipped in blood. But that, that same one who's coming with his robe dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies, had his robe torn from him and he shed his own blood at the hand of, you guessed it, oppressive authorities like Herod and Pilate and the Romans who didn't bring justice. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything wrong and yet he was crucified as a heinous criminal. But again, that was all part of God's plan. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he died as our substitute so that our wickedness was put on him at the cross because all of us are wicked. And his righteousness, the reward that he alone deserves, he's the only righteous one who deserves a reward. The reward that he deserves has been given to us. And you can receive that reward by faith, by confessing that you're a sinner, believing that Jesus died for you, and committing to following him with your life. And that's what we witnessed today in, in baptism. We, we witnessed a, a brother and a sister give testimony to recognizing those things. And so, loved ones, this is the message of Psalm 58, that there is a final judgment that we are holding out for. Let me share with you one more verse from Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3. It says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. He's looking for justice. He's looking for righteousness. All he sees is wickedness. And then he says, And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And it says, For there is a time for every matter and for every work. There is a time that is coming. Yes, we live in a time where there are authority figures who are oppressing those who are weak, but there is a time where the ultimate authority figure, the ultimate judge, the ultimate ruler will come. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be the prince of peace, but he will bring final judgment. Are you ready for that final judgment? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize that this world in which we live is broken the way that people treat one another. 
is distorted and depraved. Lord, we've, we've talked about politicians and pastors, and police officers, entertainers. Lord, we could talk about parents. We could talk about spouses. We, we could talk about bosses and employees. There's, there's no shortage of examples of, of how we witness and experience injustice in our world. And so, Lord, we cry out to you and we pray that you would bring justice, Lord. We, we pray for the repentance of people who are behaving in this way. We pray for our own repentance of ways that we've used power to manipulate or to serve our own selfish ends. And so, Lord, we look to you, we love you, we've place our hope and our faith in you, and we pray, God, that you would uh, speak to us and draw us close to you. And if there are any here who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would save them, that you would draw them to you, Lord, that they would be aware of your justice and your coming final judgment, but they would also become aware of your grace and of your mercy. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.